0: The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay. Okay, so um, let's continue where we left off yesterday morning. So we're looking at right view, uh, the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, And we have looked at one aspect of right view, which is the uh, kind of the higher aspect, the knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, and now we will look at what you might call the more ordinary aspect of right view. Uh, the right view which uh, is more approachable, more understandable, because it is more, uh, it is basically the way the Buddha taught ordinary people before you realize the Dhamma more, in a more personal sense. Uh, and this uh, little passage is taken from a sutta, uh, called The Brahmins of Sala, Majjhima 41. Uh, you should, hopefully, you should find it there. Uh, and uh, uh, it is about right view. Uh, MN 41, The Brahmins of Sala. And this is, this is quite a nice sutta. This particular sutta uh, is about what is known as the Ten Courses of Wholesome and Ten Courses of Unwholesome Actions. Uh, And it's basically where the Buddha sets out uh, what is morality in Buddhism in a very detailed way, in 10, according to 10 factors. uh, Three, bodily action, four, verbal action, and three, mental action. And the uh, right view comes under under mental action, or mental, uh, if you like, virtue, or morality, or, um, yeah. So this is from that that particular sutta, and this is how uh, the Buddha uh, describes right view. So this person who is acting in the moral way, he has right view, undistorted vision. Thus, there is what is given, and what is offered, and what is sacrificed. There is fruit and result of good and bad actions. There is this world and the other world. There is mother and father. There are beings who are reborn spontaneously there are good and virtuous recluses and brahmins in the world uh, who have themselves realized by direct knowledge uh, and declare this world and the other world." So that is, uh, that is right view. <laughs> and um, so um, what does this mean? The first thing to, to, I think, to recognize about this idea of right view, is that it's not, not really either you have right view or you have wrong view. Often right view itself is a very flexible idea. It's something you can develop, something that can change over time, something that can kind of move in the right direction. And you never really have, as I mentioned last time, you never really have the full right view, the full understanding until you see the Dhamma for yourself. That is when really right view becomes established. And in the meantime, we have like what you might call an approximate right view, or a view that is leaning in the right direction, which is roughly there. So the idea of understanding right view is actually to kind of, uh, make that right view become a little bit more right, right? So you develop this right view. You, you, you reflect on these things. What do these things actually mean? And as you reflect on them, as you understand them, that, that right view becomes more firmly established. It's more like a continuum of right view. It's not like, yes, I believe, you know, yes, I, I can you know, rebirth makes sense to me, or it doesn't make sense to me. It's more like, what are the implications of rebirth? What does it actually mean for me what are the effects of rebirth on my practice? Uh, what you know? What, what does this outlook actually entail in terms of, uh, you know, how I think about the world and how and what, what I should do about it afterwards? Uh, so there is this uh, continuum of of right view, uh, uh, more or less, more or less right. Uh, so please look at it that way. It's something to be developed, something to be changed, uh, and because. Uh, Uh, Right view is the uh, first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, And obviously, if we develop that, if we strengthen that, if we really understand what is going on, uh, that will have an impact for the rest of the practice. Because uh, each factor leads to the next one. Uh, The more strong, the more established right view is, uh, the more automatic is the process of practicing the rest of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, So for that reason, I want to spend a bit of time on this uh, and uh, to see, uh, to to get some more detailed understanding of what's happening here. So let's have a quick look at this uh, first of all, and then we will go into the the details. So, So you have right view, right, undistorted vision, again, the idea here is that right view is the view which accords with reality, this is how the world actually works. It's not just a dogma, you have to believe this. This is, the kind of, this is what I tell you, you must believe this. It is actually in accordance, with the view that accords with reality. And if you don't have a view that accords with reality, of course, it is going to be problematic for you. If you, don't, you, know, if you, if you have a distorted way, looking at the world in a distorted way, you're not going to be, be able to act upon reality, you're going to be acting upon a fantasy. It's a bit like you know, uh, with a scientific progress, you start to be able to um, control the world, you start to be able to use your understanding to create devices, to create technology, to, uh, you know, to, to use that understanding in a way whereby you can control things around you. Uh, if you don't understand things according to scientific principles, uh, then you cannot, you cannot exert that control over nature. And in the same way, if you have right view, then you can actually practice in such a way that it leads to your happiness because you understand reality. If you don't understand reality, you can't even understand what is going to lead to your happiness and what isn't. So the basic understanding is just like in science, it is essential to be able to do things which are to your benefit, otherwise, you won't be able to act in a way that is beneficial for yourself and for other people and anybody else for that matter, here. Yeah. Okay, so the content of this right view. Um, the uh, Just uh, I'll skip the first one, go to the second one here. There is fruit and result uh, of good and bad actions. Uh, so this is basically about the, what in Buddhism is known as kamma, or the laws of Kama. Uh, the idea that whatever you do, and it's not just whatever you do, it's whatever you do in a certain way, whatever you have an intention to do. Intention is a crucial aspect of karma, and intention can be varied, uh, right? But what, what you do intentionally have results. Uh, and this is kind of one of the, uh, the basic, uh, basic understandings of how the world works, uh, which is essential to, to grasp. And uh, importantly, it is often conjoined with the next one here. There is this world and there is the other world. Uh, And what this basically means is that life does not come to an end in this life, but there is another world afterwards. There's a continuity after this life comes to an end. This is the idea of rebirth that is being spoken of here. And these two things in combination are very powerful. The idea that there is rebirth and there is result of actions. Because what it means is that... Your future experience of, of a future world uh, will depend on your actions in this life. Uh, so that, um, you, you know, you, you can have all kinds of experiences. Is, and this is kind of one of the things here, is that it's not just limited to human rebirth. It's bad enough to be reborn in difficult straits in this, in this life, uh, but it can get much worse than that according to, according to this outlook of the world. Uh, and um, one way to make sense of this idea, I know sometimes people find this idea of rebirth in different realms, like deva realms and all this kind of stuff, they find it hard to, at least when you are new to Buddhism, you find it hard to kind of make sense of that. But one way of looking at it, which, which makes it quite easy to understand, is the idea that you, within the human realm, there's a certain kind of variety, a certain, uh, a certain span of experience that you can have. You can have from the most kind of, a poor person born in the very simple circumstances, uneducated, uh, you know, maybe very difficult life to the kind of most educated and, uh, and kind of living in a wealthy life in, a, in, in the good circumstances. There's a certain span in terms of happiness and suffering uh, that you can have within the human realm. Uh. Now, if you, these other realms, what they, all they really do is they increase that span uh. Right? So, this is kind of the limits of the human realm. And by adding these other realms, you're just increasing the span, the possibilities for experiencing happiness and suffering here. So, if you get reborn in a kind of a heavenly realm, it's no different from being a human, really. It's just that your ability to experience happiness is much, much greater here. You experience more happiness, more, you know, all, all the good things that you can experience in this life all those good things, to experience more of them, whatever that might be. And the same thing with a lower realm. A lower realm, again, it's not different from the human realm, really, except that you experience even more suffering than we can ordinarily experience as a human. It's just an expanding of the possibilities of happiness and suffering. That's really all it is. Apart from that, it is just you, basically, continuing in these realms. And that is, I think, quite a helpful way of understanding what these realms are all about. So this is part of the Buddhist outlook, right? This is how the Buddha says the world functions in this way. So what about, what about these other things here then? There is what is given, what is offered, what is sacrificed. What does that mean? And it means it is in the context of kamma and rebirth that we have seen just now. It is in that context that this must be understood because this the right view here is basically about karma and rebirth. So it means that what is give, you can give things, and it has results, right? It matters. When you give, it has comic results. Obviously, it is beneficial for the person you are giving to, but it, even more important, because this is about, really about your own personal spiritual path, because it is about your personal path, it has results. When you give, it gives you something back in return. Right? This is what it means. So giving is an important thing. And what is interesting here is that it is singled out in this way, right? It is actually mentioned as a separate factor of right view. And that obviously is very significant. It is, you know, it doesn't just say that there is good and bad actions, but it specifically says that there is such a thing as giving, as sacrificing, as offering things, and uh, so what that means, that you know, the reason why it is singled out in this way is obviously because generosity then is a very important part of the spiritual path, uh, This ability to be helpful, to be generous, uh, uh, to offer of yourself in whatever way it is. Uh, often it would mean kind of material support, but it can mean any kind of generosity really, where you are giving of yourself in one way or another, yeah? right? So it, it's fascinating, isn't it, that this is actually singled out in this way. Yeah? And you find also other places in the suttas a similar kind of um, emphasis on this idea of generosity. It is often said to be the foundation stone, the the basic factor of good actions that kind of lead you onwards on the Buddhist path. So because of that, because it is singled out in this way, keep that in mind, remember that. This is something that really everybody should develop in, in the spiritual practice as much as possible to be generous and kind in this way here. And um, this is how I, you know, how I regard myself when I come here to teach the retreat. I try to regard it as an act of generosity here. I don't really expect anything in return. I just do it because uh, I, hopefully, it will have some good results, right? Uh, It will be of benefit to both myself uh, and also to to other people, hopefully here. So this is uh, this is how important it is uh, that it actually is singled out as a separate factor of right view. And um, then you have just further down, just after the Buddha says there is this world, there is the other world, uh, you have another one which is interesting, right? Which is a similar kind of idea. There is mother, there is father, there is mother, there is father. So again, it, it you know when you read that, it kind of doesn't really stand out. It doesn't really mean. It doesn't seem to mean very much. But again, because the context, the context here is about karma, is about the first factor of the spiritual path, about how to move towards awakening here. Because of that, it means that the fact that there is mother and father are very significant in the karmic context and in the context of practicing towards awakening here. So the actions that we do towards our parents have a very powerful spiritual effect. That's basically what it means, right? And once you understand that, you understand that... um It is so important that, you know, if we're going to practice this path fully, if if we're going to expect to get the good results in meditation practice uh, in terms of insight and understanding, uh, then the relationship that we have with our parents uh, is one of the factors that we have to factor in on this path that we have to deal with. uh, And um, yeah, I won't say anything more about that now, I'll talk more about that later on. uh, uh, but, and I recognise that you know, people are, are, have different relationships with their parents, some have difficult relationships, some have be- better relationships. But the point is that we can always do something, right? We can't maybe not make it perfect, but we can always do something to move in the right direction. So again, very interesting that this is mentioned like this, in this way. And it fits with what you see in other places in the suttas. For those of you who know the uh, Buddhist scriptures a bit more, you know that, uh, you know, mother and father are talked about, uh, um, you know, for example, you can make very extremely bad karma, and the, w- one of the worst karmas you can make is killing your parents, right? So and again, it's the same idea again, the, the karma that we make in relationship to our parents is very, very powerful and very strong, and that is why it is mentioned here at the very beginning of the Noble Eightfold Path. Okay, then we have, there are beings who are reborn spontaneously here. And this one is the only one which I think is, um, I'm not entirely sure why it is included in right view here. And, it is interesting that there is, uh, in the Chinese, uh, parallel to this sutta, in other, la- in other words, the parallels to this sutta in other languages, uh, that is the only factor of right view is not actually found in those other parallels. Uh, so this might be, it's possible that this is not so important because it isn't found in other places. Uh, but anyway, what I, what I think it means is again this idea that when we look at the idea of of rebirth, we are expanding the possibilities of happiness and suffering here. And if you have a physical body, like in the human realm or the animal realm, there's only so much you can experience, that body limits you in a certain way. But if you can be reborn spontaneously, like what they call maybe a mind-made body and these kind of things in Buddhism, then that spontaneous rebirth, it kind of again, it expands the possibilities of the experience of happiness and suffering here. You're no longer limited to the physical body, but you expand that, that whole range of possibilities. That may be what is meant here. And it allows for types of rebirth, which otherwise would not be allowed for if you, had, if you were limited to physical bodies. And then we have the last one. There are good and virtuous recluses and Brahmins in the world who have themselves realized by direct knowledge and declare this world and the other world. Uh, And uh, the point of this is simply to uh, the the idea that there are people in the world uh, who have practiced more, who have a more profound spiritual insight than what we have, right? Uh, The idea that there are uh, beings, there are beings like the Buddha perhaps, uh, there are other people perhaps in the world today uh, who have practiced this path very profoundly, uh, and you have some idea that this is the case, this is true, right? Now, if you are going to be on the Buddhist path and practice, do the Buddhist practice, uh, this is what it means to have confidence in the Buddha, right? Confidence in the Buddha's teachings, confidence that there are areas in the world, noble people uh, who have uh, penetrated the same truth that the Buddha uh, himself penetrated a long time ago. Huh? So, this is. Uh, And this, of course, is foundational. Without that, you can't even get started on the Buddhist Buddhist path. So um, because that is foundational, maybe we should look at that one first of all. uh, The translation here is not all that accurate, I feel. It says good and virtuous recluses and Brahmins. Really, it should be uh, recluses and Brahmins who have practiced well and who have uh, achieved good results would be, I think, a better way of translating that, but anyway, it's um, perhaps good enough. Uh, And they declare this world and the other world. In other words, they know that this is the case, right? They have direct insight into these things. And this is really the point here. Uh, There is a knowledge, there's a basis uh, for this kind of declaring this kind of right view. Uh, It's not just a random thing, there is a basis for this. uh. So um, remember what I was saying before, it is uh, important to kind of establish this right view, right? To develop it, to bring it further. So how do we develop this last aspect of right view here? Uh, That there are are these uh, people in the world who have understood more than perhaps we have. Uh, How do we develop that? And of course, the first thing here is to accept that this might be the case, right? And it, it really makes very good sense. Why shouldn't there be people in the world who have more experience than we have? It's just like anything else. If you, uh, if you want to learn about medicine, if you want to learn about law, you go to university and you learn from somebody who knows more about these things. It is ridiculous to think that we can know more than somebody who is a specialist. And the same thing in the spiritual path. In the spiritual path it may not be perhaps quite as obvious as with ordinary learning. But it is the same thing, right? There are people who have been practicing these things, and it goes back for millennia. They've been sitting in the forest, peacefully, quietly, contemplating, getting into deep meditations. And it makes good sense that there should be people in the world who have more understanding than we have. This is kind of the first initial thing. And that, of course, once we, once we get that sense of confidence that this is the case, it also leads to a sense of humility, right? There's somebody you can learn from. Indeed, what is interesting, if you read the biography of the Buddha himself, this is what the Buddha did when he started out. This is before he was the Buddha. He started out and he looked into the world and he said, who can I learn from? Who is there in this world who has some kind of spiritual understanding, understanding of life that I can actually learn from her? So he went out and he learned from uh, There are a couple of people specifically mentioned in the suttas as the teachers of the Buddha. There's a fellow called Alara Kalama, who obviously had very good meditation, another person called Uddhaka Ramaputta, and they are mentioned specifically. And there seems to also be other people that the Buddha learned from in those days. So the Buddha who became the spiritual kind of genius right, of our age, who started this whole path of Buddhism, uh, even he started off with teachers. So it makes sense to have a teacher. Uh, if you have a teacher, at least they can kind of guide you in the right direction. You can see what they have to say, and they can, you know, you can, uh, uh, usually you make much quicker progress if you have somebody who can teach you, who knows what they're talking about, uh, rather than having trying to figure everything out yourself. Uh, so this is like the first, the first obvious thing. And the second thing I would recommend you to do, to get a feeling for this, uh, is to read a little bit of these suttas, right? To see if it makes any sense to you. Uh, I recommended a book to someone here the other day called In the Buddha's Words. Uh, and this is a translation. Uh, these are, this is a, um, uh, an anthology of suttas uh, translated by Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, and it is a very nice as an introduction, because it is nicely grouped according to uh, categories, the suttas, according to themes. Uh, and then it is introduced by Abhikibode, who is obviously very knowledgeable about the suttas, uh, and nice notes at the end to explain what is going on. Uh, probably one of the best books available to get, get you kind of access, get you started uh, with reading the suttas. Uh. And you will find, as with so many things, sometimes you come across passages that are, that are very meaningful, meaningful to you, very powerful to you. Some, and that will be very useful. Then you will read about the life of the Buddha, right? What, how did he live? How did he exist? And you start to get a sense of a relationship with this person who lived two and a half thousand years ago. Was he as, you know, as wonderful as people make it out sometimes? And gradually, gradually, once you get the feeling for this, you get this... Either you will be attracted towards the Buddhist teachings, because this makes sense to you, or you will feel that it's not right, or maybe it isn't for you. And either way is okay. But it's important that you have the information, this is what Buddhism is about, and that then at least you can make a decision, right? Is it right? Is it wrong? Should I do this? Shouldn't I? And then this is how you then gradually gain confidence in the Buddha, or possibly you lose confidence. But either way, you have to build it up in this way regardless. This is the first one. So please read the suttas. Please have a look at this. You don't have to read all that much. Sometimes it's about reading those things that inspire you, right? Sometimes if you read everything, you might get too much and too confusing and you think about too many things at the same time. Sometimes take maybe one or two suttas that are really, really work for you. And one of the suttas that I uh, I think is very powerful and is I think would generally useful to most people is this particular sutta that we are looking at right now, Majjhima Nikaya 41, because it talks about ethics in a very very broad sense. And when you read that sutta, uh, it talks, you know, it gives you a very broad outline of ethics in Buddhism. And ethics, of course, is the foundation stone. I've been talking about this all the way through now. How important it is to get your conduct right. To get um, To get your habits, your personality, to get that kind of aligned with the Dhamma in the right way, then the meditation happens by itself. And this Sutta is specifically about that, about ethics. So I think it's very useful. Sometimes it's good to concentrate on certain themes, right? You don't get too much stuff, too much information which kind of just is floating around and you can't really, um, it just becomes too much to think about really sometimes. So this is the uh, the first thing. Read the suttas and do it in a wise way. Get an overall picture and then focus on a few things which are powerful for your practice. Sure. And of course the other thing which is powerful, uh, powerful to... Get a feeling for this uh, is just sometimes to you know you have certain teachers uh, who you feel you have a certain amount of confidence in uh, because they embody the values of buddhism they embody the qualities uh, that you're supposed to achieve by practicing this path uh. so sometimes there will be people in the world you think wow this person really has these qualities uh, and then you can when you see that it gives you more confidence as well uh. and i have no doubt myself that there are people today in this world who embody these qualities of, that, of Buddhism and who have practiced this path in such a way that they have achieved some of these results, right? And that gives you a sense of, it works. Not just an ancient teaching on paper, it actually still has an effect in the present day. Yeah. And the third way, which is uh, you, you start to see this path as well, is when you practice it yourself uh, and you get some of the results, right? You see that meditation actually works. You see that ethical conduct actually works. And when you do that and you start then to kind of to, uh, extrapolate that into the future, where does this lead? If I continue practicing this way, uh, what can it actually give rise to? You start to understand that there is a lot of potential in this path, uh, and you start to get the feeling that indeed there might be people who actually have seen these things in a very profound and deep sense. So, this is. Um, what this is about. So it's important to have that. And when you have the sense that there are beings in the world, in particular the Buddha, who has seen these things, right? Seen this world, seen the other world. Then what happens at that point? What happens at that point is that you have a Mita, This Pali word, Mita, which basically means a good friend. And the primary good friend in the world is the Buddha. Buddha, precisely because he has seen, he has understood, and because uh, he's sometimes called the eye of the world, right? He has seen, and because he has seen, he's able to teach you. And that kind of opens your eyes a little bit as well, uh, because he is then pointing the way. Uh, while we're kind of fumbling in the, in, around in the darkness, it's nice to have somebody with a torch who can actually show you the way. And That's basically what the Buddha is. He's got the torch, he can see. So you kind of take, take his hand, so to speak, and he, he will lead you in the right direction. So this is what this next sutta is all about. The next sutta is called Half the Holy Life. And this is about the Kalyanamitta and the, imp- the importance and the significance of having this uh, good friend who guides you in the right direction. Huh? So this is how this uh, how this sutta goes. Huh? Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling among the Sakyans. Sakyans where it uh, was a clan where the Buddha was from. Huh? Uh, where there was a town of the Sakyans named Nagaraka. <laughs> Then the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One. Having approached, he paid homage to the Blessed One, sat down to one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, this is half of the holy life. That is good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. Not so, Ananda, not so. This is the entire holy life, Ananda. That is good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. When a bhikkhu has a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, it is to be expected that he will develop and cultivate the noble eightfold path. So I'll just just stop there. Uh, So this is about good friendship. It's interesting here, good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship, right? It sounds like some kind of uh, term from the Soviet Union or something like that. (laughs) 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 But <laughs> I think Bikibodi was, was trying to find another word, which kind of sounds like friend, right? So comrade was the only thing he could come up with. So That's why, that's why it has it in there. Yeah. It has, it's nothing to do with um, communism or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so, and this is interesting, isn't it? That Ananda says that this is half of the holy life, this idea of good spiritual friendship. In other, words, in other words, you understand that this is really important, right? It obviously matters a lot. And then the Buddha says, no, it's not half the holy life, it's the entire holy life. And when you, you read that, you think, is the Buddha being serious? Is he talking kind of metaphorically? Is he talking like, well, it, is it trying to say it's really, really important? But surely it doesn't mean that it is the entire holy life. How can it be the entire holy life? And uh, I used to think like that too. I used to think, you know, I kind of, you read these things and you kind of skip over it, and then one day you think, wait a minute, he's actually saying it is the entire holy life. What does that mean? And of course the Buddha, he doesn't usually mince his words, he doesn't mess around. When he says things, you can be pretty sure it has some significant meaning, right? So when he says it is the entire holy life, it probably means that it is just that, the entire holy life. So how can that be the case? And to to understand that, and this is the uh, again this Buddhist idea of non-self, right? Because there is because from the Buddhist point of view, there is no entity inside uh, which is permanent. It means that we have no kind of guidance inside of us which steers us on the path, and like. You know, like a a compass which is always pointing in the right direction. We haven't got that. There is no compass there. There's nothing there which kind of is solid, which always is reliable, always going to do what is right and avoid what is wrong. We don't have, there is no such thing inside of you. So, you know, the simile that I like to use is like we are in a sense like a ship on the ocean a ship which has no engine, which has no sails, which has no rudder, so you can't steer, you can't kind of go this direction or that direction. Now a ship which has no steering mechanism, what happens to that ship? What happens to it is that it will drift whichever way, either the currents or the wind will take it, right? So if the wind comes from the north, the ship will go to the south. The wind comes from the west, the ship will go to the east, etc., etc. It will drift according to the prevailing conditions, right? And in a sense, in a very real sense, we are a bit like rudderless ships in samsara. We are rudderless people. We have no real steering mechanism. There's nothing inside of us which naturally points us in this direction or that direction. We are rudderless and we drift according to the prevailing conditions. What are those prevailing conditions? They're all the conditioning that has affected us in this life and is affecting us now and has affected us from Buddhist point of view also in past lives, right? All the conditioning. All the, the conditioning is both internal and external. So the conditioning from past lives is now mostly internalised. Originally it came from outside, but now it comes from the inside. It is the kind of the habits you have, the, you know, the way that you have built up, um, the sense of identity that you have, all of these internal things that are driving you in a certain way. And then there's all the external things in this life, right? Your upbringing, your schooling, your parents, your friends, your all of these things, your work, everything in this life that you have experienced, every single experience, will have conditioned you in a certain way. And that is what we are. We are that conditioning. We are a sum of all the the environment, all the things around us. That is essentially what we have become and what we are now. And then there are new conditions coming and they will then affect us in a certain way, right? And once you understand that, that we are just a sum of the conditioning, then of course, the only way that you're gonna get on the spiritual path, that there has to be some kind of spark. Something has to trigger that, you know, uh, that movement onto the spiritual path. And that trigger is then the Kalyana Mita. That is the person who says, the eye of the world, I have seen, I have understood, I have realized these things, listen, right? And then you look at this person and you say, should I listen or should I not listen? This is part of, the, part of our job as, as a spiritual practitioner, is to look at those people who are teachers and ask us whether they are worthy of being followed. Do they have the qualities that they uh, are, uh, do, they, do they have those qualities in their conduct that they are talking about? Do they have a sense of metta, a sense of compassion, a sense of kindness? Right? Do they have a lack of these defilements they're talking about that we should overcome? And then this is how you then gain confidence in the Buddha. And then you have a kalyanamitta, you have a good spiritual friend, you have a light that shines in the darkness and shows you the way. And it is absolutely necessary. Without that, you can't really make you can't really make the breakthrough. So this is what the. Uh, what this is all about. And that is why it is 100% of the spiritual life, right? Because without it you can't get anywhere. It is absolutely necessary. It is the condition that drives you forward. And it is based on that that you then practice virtue even better, that you practice generosity, that you meditate, that you get insight. It all ultimately comes from that. And um, yesterday uh, you were asking about the, uh, you know, about the last saying of the Buddha, the, uh, apamadeta sampadeta, you know, strive on with uh, with heedfulness, and I said that this idea of apamada stands at the very foundation of the Buddhist path. It is one of many things, uh, and I couldn't remember so many others. But one of those is kalyanamitta. Kalamita is another thing which stands as the very foundation stone of the Buddhist path. Without that you can't get started. Appamada is another one. Appamada, because you have to be heedful, at the very least you have to be able to listen to those people, right, or to take an interest. If, you are, if you're not even interested or you have decided that you want to believe in another religion or whatever and you don't have no time for these... Uh, Recluses, or whatever, there is no chance that you will get anywhere. So, Apamada, Yonisoma, Nisikara is another one, uh, a wise reflection, uh, etc., etc. Anyway, okay, so then let's see what what happens then. So, then he says, it is because of these Kalyanamitta that you practice the Noble Eightfold Path. And then, of course, he gives a exposition of the Noble Eightfold Path. And how, Ananda, does a bhikkhu, a monk who has a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path? Here, Ananda, a bhikkhu develops right view, which is based on seclusion, dispassion and cessation, maturing in release. He develops right intention, right speech, right action right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right stillness, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, cessation, and maturing in release. It is in this way, Ananda, that the bhikkhu, who has good friends, good companions, a good comrade, develops and cultivates the noble Eightfold Path." So, uh, um, here, I'm not sure how much I should talk about this because this is a, a fairly, these are very fairly profound aspects of the uh, noble eightfold path. We have this idea that it is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation. Uh, and uh, what this means is that. Uh, uh, Basically, your practice of the Noble Eightfold Path, especially when it comes to the deeper aspects of the Path, some degree of seclusion is required, right? This is why we go on a retreat. You are secluding yourself a bit from society, secluding yourself from your ordinary chores of life, getting a little bit away. And this is one of the reasons why you become a monk or a nun, right? So you can seclude yourself even more from society. Where I live uh, at Bodhinyana Monastery in Perth, uh, every monk has a little hut in the forest. Uh, and from my hut, I, when I walk in my walking path, I can't see any other huts. Uh, so it's like I'm completely, a sense of complete seclusion, right? It's just nature around you. Uh, and that gives you, after a while, it gives you a sense of peace. Uh, it gives you a sense of distance. And that <coughs> sense of distance means you have, you know, you, you feel a kind of spaciousness both internally and externally. Uh, And that external seclusion, being separated from other people around you, then eventually leads to the internal seclusion, uh, where your mind starts to become separated from the world. uh. In particular, what it becomes separated from is the five hindrances of meditation, uh, five hindrances that block uh, your practice in meditation. So seclusion, when it comes to meditation practice, means the mental seclusion, when the mind is free from those uh, from those hindrances. So this is why seclusion is so important, because it is based on that seclusion that this path really starts to take off, right? The hindrances disappear because you are, you have, you are away from uh, the worldly phenomena which tend to give rise to hindrances, rise to problems, gives rise to desire, gives rise to anger, all these other kind of things. And then it is based on dispersion and cessation. And what this means is that you are, when you are practicing the Buddhist path and you are practicing meditation in particular, things start to fade away, right? Things start to cease. This is what happens in meditation practice. More and more things fade away, they cease. Things become simpler and simpler in your life, simpler and simpler in your mind. Things fading away here. And this is the, kind of the, the basis for uh, meditation and for insight, uh, is this fading away of things. Uh, and this is how the path kind of develops. Uh, and you will, have, you will get a little bit of experience of that on this retreat, uh, just a little bit. I mean, it's, this thing goes very, very deep. Uh, this, this kind of fading away of things uh, and ceasing of things is a very profound kind of thing. And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper Until eventually, it says here, it matures in release. And release here really is the release from craving. You don't crave anymore. You see that all the phenomena in the world are impermanent. You can't control them, right? You can't really rely on them. There is a higher happiness to be had beyond these things. And when you see that, craving just disappears all by itself. It is eliminated. And that is the idea of release or liberation on the Buddhist path. But anyway, that's, it's a bit getting a bit ahead of us here. we kind of, uh, um, this is towards the very end of the Noble Eightfold Path, and we're still just dealing with the first factor, so. But um, anyway, since it's there, I thought it might be nice just to uh, discuss it briefly here. Okay, then the last part of this uh, sutta. Uh, by the following method to ananda, it may be understood how the entire holy life is good friendship, good com- companionship, good comradeship. By relying upon me as a good friend, right here's the Buddha speaking, you rely on the Buddha as a good friend. The Buddha is the Kalyanamitta. Uh, Ananda, uh, beings subject to birth are freed from birth. Being subject to old age are freed from old age. Being subject to death are freed from death being subject to sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, are freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. By this method too, Ānanda, it may be understood how the entire holy life is good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship." So this is just another way of looking at the Noble Eightfold Path, right? The Noble Eightfold Path leads to the end of suffering. So by practicing the Noble Eightfold Path and by doing that, it leads you, uh, this kalyana mitta leads you eventually to the highest happiness, the ending of all problems, right? Uh, And the highest happiness that is possible to attain uh, in this world. uh. Okay, so there you are. That is the first, just a very little, short little sutta about what is what is meant by the idea of having confidence that there are beings in this world who have seen something more profound, who understand this world, who understand the ideas of rebirth and karma, and who ultimately understand that there is an awakening beyond uh, ordinary phenomena, the ordinary world. That is what, what is meant by that. So now. Uh, we have a little bit more time. Now we, I want to look at the next part of this right view. And that is the idea of uh, rebirth and how the Buddha talks about the idea of rebirth in the suttas. Uh, and again, it is, this is perhaps a bit challenging for some people uh, because it is quite, um, uh, in the typical Buddha's way, it is quite direct and quite straight to the point. Uh, and uh, sometimes when you hear things directly for the first time that you're not used to hearing, it can be quite, can seem quite powerful. Anyway, let's, let's see what the Buddha has to say. This is the sutta called Tears 15.3, uh, Sangyutani 15.3 here. Yeah. I'm not sure if the, the uh, sequence you have is maybe slightly different from what I have uh, But um, yeah, fifteen Sangyutanika SN N fifteen. 3 Tears. So, At Savati. Because this samsara is without discoverable beginning, the first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. What do you think, bhikkhus? Which is more the stream of tears uh, that you have shed uh, as you have roamed and wandered on uh, through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this or the water of the four great oceans? As we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, uh, the stream of tears that we have shed as we have roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water of the four great oceans. So that, that is pretty, pretty strong, isn't it? And, and there are... <laughs> And there are a number of, of suttas like that uh, in, this, uh, in this particular part of the, uh, of the, of the uh, Buddha's Word. And there are others which are perhaps even more graphic, like you know, the amount of blood that you have shed and this kind of things, uh, and uh, the amount of bones that you have piled up after, being, after dying uh, so many times, etc., etc. But let's have a look at this uh, in a little bit more detail, starting from the beginning here. So, first thing here, uh, because uh, this samsara, samsara is without discoverable beginning here. Uh, so, the word uh, samsara is one of these kind of crucial words in the Buddhist vocabulary. And samsara is just a word which means like the faring on, the traveling on. Uh, And it basically refers to kind of the sequence of births and deaths going on and on and on. This is the meaning of samsara, traveling on, the moving on, kind of the endless, restless, moving, restlessness, moving from one life to the next life, uh, going back and potentially going forward uh, indefinitely. No clear point of beginning, no clear point of ending, right? Just moving on. uh, and once you look at it like that, you know, if you look at only one life, a single life can seem quite purposeful. You are here to maybe do a good job and to kind of help society on in the right direction. You're here perhaps to bring up your children, if you have children, and to kind of you know, make them good people so they also kind of bring society forward and bring humanity forward and, whatever, and animals or whatever else. And in this sense, in a single life, life can seem quite meaningful. But when you start to look at life in the broader context of life after life, of doing the same thing again and again, right? In one life you have done all these things. You had your education, you had your job, you have been bringing up children, you've been trying to do good in the world, and then you die, and then you get reborn, and then you try to do exactly the same thing again, right? It's almost as if you, you've forgotten what you, that you did it in the past, and now you're doing it again. And, you th- and you know, you're not aware of that. And then you do it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, right? The same thing. And after a while you wonder, what is the point of all this? It seems so pointless. And is it really getting somewhere? But sometimes it's getting somewhere, sometimes it's not. Sometimes you are helping society, sometimes you're dragging it down. Sometimes you know the world is kind of going in the right direction, or the times the world might be going in the wrong direction. So the whole thing, when you look at it in the bigger picture, it doesn't make so much sense anymore. There isn't that sense of progress. There isn't that sense of meaning. And life becomes kind of, sort of, uh, pointless in a sense, right? It's a terrible thing to say. (laughs) It kind of seems pointless. You are here, you know, the ordinary life, the ordinary world. And that is why, I have to admit, that's one of the reasons why I'm still a monk after all these years. One reason is because, I feel that there is a kind of general progress in my practice all the way through, and that makes it very meaningful. But the other thing to me, I I can't really see anything all that meaningful to spend my life doing Sure, you know, you can, you can do good in the world and all that, and of course that is what we should do. Huh? But without that bigger spiritual picture, without the kind of the, some kind of bigger picture to frame it all into for, to make it meaningful, huh? it is actually, to me, it seems quite pointless, the whole thing here. Yeah? And this is, again, one of the ideas about uh, samsara, about this idea of rebirth. Once you start to understand what it actually means, once you start to understand that you have done this, right, it seems so important, I've got to get my education, so you strive at university and you get that education. It seems so important until you realize that you have done this a million times before. Then it doesn't seem so important anymore, right? I've got to get that degree. Suddenly you have had a million degrees before, it hasn't really gotten you anywhere. You're kind of, okay, you know, so what, right? And this is, this is the kind of the big picture, and this is why the big picture matters. And it changes your perspective on this life and what actually is important in this life. And it turns you into a very new and different direction. So I'm not saying this to make you depressed or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying it because it kind of opens up a new way of looking at the world, right? Some of the, what, what is the amazing thing? Some of the happiest people I know, the other people who say exactly these kind of things. Life is just pointless. And then they, ha, 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 laugh and have a good time, right? And, <laughs> and this is, So this is not anything to make you sad about. It's just to turn you in the right direction and to think about life in a new way here. Yeah? So, and this is the second thing here, samsara, it is without discoverable beginning here. And this is also quite interesting. This is the way the, uh, when the Buddha talks about things, he doesn't talk about things in what you, what is often called like a metaphysical way. The word metaphysical means like in a theoretical or doctrinal way without any, a basis in, in experience, right? That's what I mean by meta- metaphysics here. There's no basis in experience. It's just an idea or a, or a theory. So if the Buddha had said that samsara doesn't have any beginning, that would have been like uh, th- theoretical. It's something you can actually never know. You cannot know whether something has a beginning or not because you can always go back further in time. But what he says, it has no discoverable beginning, which is very different, because that is based on your own experience. You know, you can go back in time, right? And this is what the Buddha claimed to have done. He goes back in time, life before life before life. Right? And he, there is no beginning, it just goes on. And of course, one of the interesting things the Buddha saw when he did that, he saw also the, uh, that the, the world goes through cycles as well, right? Uh, he talks about the world going through these enormous cycles, uh, a bit like perhaps the Big Bang in the present day, and then a kind of a big crunch kind of following after it. Uh. So he saw, and then because he saw this, he says, well, you know, no matter how far back I go, no matter how many big bangs I see, no matter how many millions of life I look backwards, there is no beginning. It just goes goes further back, further back, further back, further back, There is no discoverable beginning. And it shows you the Buddha's very pragmatic way, right? He talks about what he knows. He doesn't just give empty doctrines. And this is throughout the suttas. It's always about what is knowable, from the Buddha's point of view. And this is the thing about, you know, rebirth and life in different realms and all this kind of stuff. It is, the Buddha says specifically, I'm teaching this because I know it, not because I, you know, I've heard it from somebody else or it is some kind of theory or whatever. So this again is a very important part of the Buddha's teachings. It is experiential, it is knowable. And then he says, a first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, fettered by craving, right? There is no first point again. You can't find the beginning to all this. Uh, Buddhism is one of those few religions where there is no beginning. There is no point at which the world was created. It just goes back. And uh, I find that quite a nice way of looking at things. It's certainly a way that makes sense to me. Of beings uh, hindered by ignorance, right? You are in the darkness, you are ignorant, you can't see, you are deluded, you don't understand the way the world is. And because you are in the darkness, you keep on wondering, 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 not really knowing what you're doing, going from one life to the next one, not understanding that there, it is all just uh, uh, you know, suffering. You're suffering in this life, suffering in the next one, now here, now there. Don't really know what's going on. You have this narrow little view of this life. You don't see the big picture. Uh, and for that reason, you are uh, kind of just wandering on in darkness. So you are hindered by ignorance. You can't see it because it's dark and you are affected by craving. Craving is what binds you. That's why you're fettered by craving. It binds you to rebirth. It binds you to the round of existence. You get reborn because of craving. Craving is the driving force that takes you from one life to the next one. So you are fettered by craving. It binds you to the round, and you're hindered by ignorance. And, of course, ignorance and craving, again, are mutually conditioned by each other. You crave precisely because you're ignorant. They also. Uh, bound to each other. It's a nice nice little thing, that one there, this idea of being hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. A p- Powerful little understanding. Uh, it, it's actually a very b- a broad thing right there. It tells you a lot about uh, the Buddhist outlook and the Buddhist worldview. Just those few little words. Uh. And then uh, he goes on to say what this means, right? What does it mean? What, what actually are, is it that we are missing? Uh, and one of the things that we don't see is precisely this that we have cried more tears than there are waters in the four oceans. The four oceans in those days were the oceans around India, so it was a little bit more limited than the kind of the world oceans as we know them now, but it's roughly the same, right? It's lots and lots of water. It doesn't really matter exactly how much it is. Uh, and this is uh, this is the problem. We don't understand the scope of suffering in this world. And then the Buddha says, um, "Good, good, bhikkhus. It is good that you understand the dhamma taught by me in such a way. The stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered." through this long course weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This alone is more than the water in the four oceans. For a long time, because you have experienced the death of a mother. As you experience this weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, the stream of tears that you have shed is more and the waters in the four great oceans. For a long time, because you have experienced the death of a father, the death of a brother, the death of a sister, the death of a son, the death of a daughter, the loss of relatives, the loss of wealth, the loss of illness. As you have experienced this, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, the streams of tears that you have shed is more than the water in the four great oceans. For what reason? Because, because the samsara is without discoverable beginning. The first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. It is enough to experience revulsion towards all formations, enough to become dispassionate towards them, enough to be liberated from them. Once you see the problem, once you see the scope of this, once you see the, uh, you know, what is actually going on, you get this feeling of enough, right? You get repelled by this. This is understanding suffering that becomes the first noble truth in a much broader sense than you have ever seen it before. You see this vastness of samsara now being reborn here, now being reborn somewhere else, now being an animal perhaps, right? And uh, going on and on, and then you get this, oh, enough, I, I can't take this anymore. So you get this revulsion, this is what revulsion means in a very deep sense. You get repelled by this whole thing called existence. And you kind of get pushed off the wheel of samsara, you had enough. And this is what it means, revulsion towards all formations. Uh, it's a ter- my I mean, a terrible <coughs> translation. When you, when you hear the revulsion from all formations, you think, okay, well, <laughs> it, you know, it doesn't. To me, it doesn't really grab the mind at all. Formation says here is the Pali word sankhara, all conditioned phenomena. Right, all phenomena of the world basically, they're all conditioned. So you experience, you are repelled by all the phenomena of the world, basically, here. Because you see that suffering is inherent in all this. uh, And it will continue like this into the future, unless you do something about it now. And that's why you feel repelled. uh. And then when you have that sense of being repelled uh, then you become dispassionate. You lose your interest in this world, right? There's no interest anymore. Dispassion is the opposite of being passionate, of being interested in something. So you lose your interest. And when you lose your interest completely, and that of course takes a while, but when your interest is completely lost, then you craving disappears. And craving disappearing is the same as being liberated. Liberation means craving having ceased. Because when craving ceases, you are no longer going to get reborn. Because craving, as I said before, is that which fetters you to the round of existence, to the round of birth and death, of samsara. So, there you are. That is the one about the uh, uh, suttas on the uh, Stream of Tears. And it's a very powerful, very powerful sutta. Uh, and if you if you kind of if if that sort of thing inspires you you can go to that particular chapter and there's a number of suttas there which talk about this in the same way if you does if you feel it is if you don't like it you don't have to read that kind of suttas. So the point here is that people are inspired by different things they find different things interesting so you read those things that interest you don't just uh, you know, if, so, if you find something really hard to read or you don't like it at all, don't force yourself to read stuff you don't like. Yeah. And maybe later on you can get back to it afterwards once you have digested some of the other stuff in the suttas. Uh. So that is uh, uh, the Buddha's way of explaining rebirth and why this uh, one reason, upon, m- one among many reasons, uh, why the idea of rebirth is so powerful and so important. Uh. And uh, uh, I will stop there because we have been going for just over an hour, and uh, we will continue uh, tomorrow morning with a little bit more about rebirth and then about comma and the other factors we're we'll talking about afterwards. So.